We're up to Luke chapter 4. What have we looked at so far? (laughs) We had the story of the coming of the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And then we had his coming, that is John the Baptist, of course. And then we had the word about the one he was proclaiming is coming, the word about Christ. And shortly after the birth of John, we have the birth of Christ and all the attendant circumstances there. And we get the word. uh, (laughs) I wonder how they handled things back then in, in Bethlehem. Uh, Born to Mary and Joseph, Jesus, eight pounds, eight ounces, 22 inches long, healthy baby, and was turned over to them for their care. It is is humbling. Can you imagine? They had awareness of who this was, and they've been tasked to lovingly rear this child. Well, then we move along, and at the age of of 12, this one that they're rearing uh, skips out on them, so to speak, and hangs back in Jerusalem at the age of 12, and he's at the temple, and he tells his parents when they come back with the (laughs) worry, chagrin, he tells them, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Wow. (laughs) Well, then we move along, perhaps about 18 years We get up to about the age of 30. We know about John the Baptist. We finish talking about him, if you will. Not much more about him in Luke. We know he's taken out of the, off the scene when he's arrested by Herod for preaching the gospel, basically, and about sin. And then here comes Christ. His ministry is about to begin. And It is there that I want to uh, read today from Luke chapter 4 and the first 13 verses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, (laughs) It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, if you were teaching this passage of scripture to your children or grandchildren, uh, how would you break it down? Basically easy, isn't it? Jesus is being tempted. (laughs) One time, 
two times, three times. But of course, we know there's more to it than that. That is there, but there's more than that. We're seeing here the realness and the completeness of the incarnation. Jesus wasn't just born in Bethlehem, like we reiterated. It was more than that. He didn't just grow up to this point free, how <laughs> it boggles the mind, free of sin all the way up to the age of 30. You know, when I track my life, I might have got to what, the age of two before you could count sin in my life, you know? <laughs> it didn't take long, but he's gone all the way up here, those so far, 30 years around that. And now we really see the realness and the completeness of this incarnation taking place here. Having, he has come to seek and to save the lost. That puts a priority on this passage here and his life so far. He could have been disqualified in a moment from being able to be the Messiah, the Savior, but he hasn't been so far. And then we come to chapter four. Having been equipped and commissioned as it were, those are my words, Jesus starts his earthly ministry. And this is what's happened. He's right at the jump fulfilling Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right, that's one thing that's going on here. In every respect, Philippians says, in every respect. It also says in Philippians, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. That's what's going on here. This is the fulfillment of what we read later in Hebrews, chronologically that is. He's being completely uh, rendered appropriate for this task of being the savior. Well, the stage is quickly set in the first two verses. What do we read? Jesus, I pause, don't go fast here. Full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when he, they were ended, he was hungry. Look how his ministry begins. When did you become a Christian? How many years have you become, have you been a Christian? Is your first week experience anything like this? <laughs> it's great that you've come. It's great that you're saved. Now you've been baptized. Now come on with me. <laughs> Here's the next phase of your Christian development. The Holy Spirit is gonna lead you into the presence of the devil himself to be tempted, perhaps more fiercely than anyone else has ever been tempted. One of the things it says there is what? He was in there for 40 days and he ate nothing. You look at me, you know I haven't gone 40 hours without eating. 
He went 40 days. It's incredible to think about that. I trust that he was close to death or could have been. I have never been without food longer than about two days. 40 days. Well, then you add on top of that that he's going in the spirit to be tempted by the devil. How many temptations do we see here in this chapter four? Three are mentioned. But look at the verse uh, before that. Led by the spirit in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. I think it's likely he could have been tempted all along those 40 days up to those three there, which might be the climax of this particular meeting with Satan. But those three very <laughs> strident temptations are before us. If he was already being tempted and he was hungry, pile those on top of each other. This is tremendous pressure on our Savior. He ate nothing and he faced temptation and three very fierce temptations. Do you remember what happened back in chapter three? It's been a few weeks, but you go back to three and verse 22. We read this. This was, of course, at the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit was on him. God is pleased with him. So chapter four, we gotta believe that God is pleased with what's going on here. You say, isn't that sadistic? No, that's fulfilling the scriptures. He was equipped already back in chapter three at his baptism with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is God, man. He needed the spirit as a man. And he was equipped with the spirit beginning with his baptism. He is being led by that spirit now. Please don't overlook that. <laughs> this is a very significant thing in this passage here. He had positive preparation back in chapter three. He now has negative preparation that we see throughout these verses of temptation here, particularly in verses one, three, six, and nine, dealing with these temptations. What is that positive thing or that uh, negative thing he has here? Well, let's read it, we'll see. Let me give you this quote from a, a uh, commentator whose books I don't have, if I can ever find them, be glad to get them. A fellow named Godet. The temptation was the last act of his moral education. What's taking place here? It gave him an insight into all the ways in which his messianic work could be easily marred. He was doing more than just being tempted. He sees and feels the force of how his call, how his equipping to be the Messiah, the Savior, could be marred here. And it's interesting to see the devilish ways that he's tempted. It is a battle for his soul taking place here. Whereas Adam was the story of Paradise Lost, 
Jesus is going to be the story of paradise regained. Have you ever read that, those poems by Milton? A, a godly, uh, as far as we know, man, John Milton, wrote those tremendous stories that had to deal with the work of Jesus Christ. For 40 days, he is tempted by the devil. Think of the other names for, for Satan. Diabolos, he's called the deceiver. He's called the slanderer. He's called the tempter. He is doing all of those things here. The intense uh, encounter here is uh, almost unbearable. Think about Satan. Now, this isn't the only time, of course, you know this in scripture that he's depicted and doing his work. Listen to these descriptions of him. In John chapter eight, he's called a liar and a murderer. In Revelation 12, he's called the dragon. In Genesis three, what is he? He's the serpent. Some people see that as a snake. In Genesis 17, he's called, uh, John 17, I'm sorry, he's called the evil one. In 1 Peter, he's called a lion seeking someone to devour. In 1 Thessalonians, he's called the tempter. Well, he starts off on top of the other ones that perhaps Christ has already faced leading up to this with temptation number one. The stage is set and now we have here in this story of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, temptation number one. What is it? What is it? It's in verse three and four there. I know you're hungry. It's as if Satan says this. I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days. But I know you can do something about it, Jesus. Take this stone and turn it into bread. Go ahead. Take this. Look what he says. And listen. You have to let this sink in. The words there, if you are the son of God, could very well be translated, since you are the son of God, okay? You ever have anybody, uh, buddies you ran around with? Come on, <laughs> my friends called me Z and other things. Come on, Z, you can do this. Come on, come on. That's, Satan's doing this. He's, come on, you can do this. You're the son of God. You're hungry all the other things that might have come into play. Surely God doesn't want to see you die. Come on, eat something. I don't know what kind of temptations come into your life, but <laughs> the temptation to eat had to be intense in the life of Christ right here. Eat something since you are the son of God. Command this bread or this stone to be turned into bread. What is, that the, what is all the way back behind that? You command this. What's behind that, if, if Christ had done that, was to listen, or if you will, to obey the command of Satan to do this. It wasn't just simply take this stone and make it bread. It was more than that. Since you are the son of God, really, since you are the son of God, think about it, six weeks Mark six weeks from today, where would that be? This is what, the beginning of the second week of April? So we go to about the third week of May. Well, let's just make it the holiday, Memorial Day. Go home, we're gonna eat again on Memorial Day. Come on over to my house for a barbecue. Think of that, six weeks with no food. 
six weeks. Make this bread from this stone. How does Jesus answer? Verse four, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Where's he quoting? Deuteronomy. <clears throat> this harkens back to, to the book of Exodus. Think about the interplay between Israel and God who was leading them. We are starving. You brought us out here to starve to death. They're at Moses' throat, if you will. You brought us out here for this? Come on. One time they even say, I'd rather be back in Egypt and listen to what, you remember what they said with the leeks and the onions and <laughs> the other things? They're tasty in their place, I admit, but it's not a full diet. Come on. This harkens back to Exodus, a picture of what is taking place in the New Testament, God's deliverance of his people. They faced that temptation, but they weren't willing to really settle down in their thoughts that God will provide. He will, and he will. You read Matthew chapter six, of course, you know the Sermon on the Mount. Guys, Jesus preaches, why are you worried? The sparrows have everything they need. God knows every one of them. He will take care of you, in other words. It will be taken care of. Believe. This, after a 40-day fast, perhaps he's never been weaker than he has been here. And he may have been closer to death than any time of his life before the cross here at this moment. In other words, what's happening? Satan is saying to him, come out of your natural man and do something supernatural. The temptation is more than to be fed. It is to act in a supernatural way as God, if you will, at the suggestion of Satan. What the depth of, of sin this would be. Do this. Commentator Barclay writes, it is no temptation to us to turn stones into bread or to leap from the temple pinnacle. Remember, Pastor said this in a sermon not too long ago about <laughs> he is free to dunk a basketball, right? <laughs> but in his shape, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. See, Christ could do this we're not tempted by this, are we? We don't go to a park and think for a minute that we can take some of the gravel there and make food out of it. He had a particular temptation here. It is interesting uh, to see the depth of the sin uh, that embodies Satan. You just think about this. He had to know who Jesus was. That's why he's fighting so hard against him here. This can't happen. And he's, going to, he's not going to succeed. He hasn't succeeded for 1,600 pages up to this point, but yet he continues and continues and continues. It's no wonder some people we witness to, we don't see them come to the Lord for a while. Unless there's a supernatural act, they never will. Satan had much more knowledge, I think, and a closer relationship with God in a certain way than we ever will. He was with him face to face, if you will. 
He was particularly in Isaiah when he was cast down from heaven for his rebellion. And no wonder people who aren't believers have such difficulty coming. Satan knows everything about the plan of God and yet continues in rebellion. But we, we don't have this particular temptation. So how does this apply to us? We'll see. Ironside says this, Jesus was not tempted to find out if he could sin, but to prove that he was the sinless one. If he had done this, away was gone that designation as the sinless son of God. That's what the temptation was. In his physical weakness, he has to battle this particular physical temptation to eat. What are your physical temptations? You know, we just discussed briefly some of the illnesses that are among us, how we can be tempted in our illnesses. Some people want to rail their fist at God. I trust that's not us. Some of us want to doubt his goodness to us when we're laid aside. There might be other temptations in our physical condition. Some of us don't have enough money. We're tempted to have some kind of temptation come into our lives to go against the will of God or other things. This great physical weakness though came to Jesus and he had to deal with it. Satan seems to know that the Redeemer has come. So what is particularly interesting about this temptation is perhaps he rolled it over in his mind. You know, I've tried this once before and it worked. Oh, it worked cataclysmically. Let's try it again. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? <laughs> hey, have you tried this fruit? It is pleasant to the eyes. Now, please take that and run with it. I'm going to give you some background material to that. Here, take and eat. What happened? They did. This has worked before. Jesus, take, eat, make something of this. Submit yourself to this. Why not again? It worked with Adam and Eve. Let's try this with Jesus. Well, when I say I want to fill this in, you just think about that. Where were Adam and Eve? They were in the garden. It was probably a plush place. They could eat of everything in the garden but that one tree. Everything. Now we see Jesus. He's in a wilderness. He's not in a garden. And for 40 solid days, he's had nothing to eat. Just think about that. The difference between the two. And thank God our Savior was able to overcome. How does he overcome? Verse four. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not be, live by bread alone. It is written. The force of the word of God. Please don't miss that. Don't miss that when you go into worship and listen to a sermon. Don't miss that in your devotions. Don't miss that anytime you hear the word of God. It is written. There is great power in there, in that. Uh, I once was tempted and I decided, you know, I've heard this verse, I'm gonna pray it. And I did. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And, that, and I prayed that a number of times and thank God I was able to overcome that temptation. 
the truth of that word. <laughs> Jesus doesn't cast it aside. Why would we? It is heinous in the time in which we live to see the whole denominations leaving behind the truth of the word of God to go some other direction that they in their minds think is better. Well, this temptation, like the one in the garden, is overcome. And Satan is struck with the word of God again. There's power there, great power. He wanted Jesus to doubt God and his word. He wanted him to go this way. He wanted to raise suspicion. You know, really, Jesus, he wants you to die out here in this wilderness where no one is around, where you have no recourse but to turn this, use your supernatural power, turn this stone into bread. This temptation to the flesh was like the one he used on Eve. When you eat this, your eyes will be opened, oh, unlike anything you've seen before. And it was the fruit of delight to the eyes. In answering, Jesus refutes the doubt that is encompassed in this temptation by using the word of God. And unlike Adam and Eve, he uses that word profoundly to turn back Satan. Eve allowed herself, and of course Adam in tow, to be turned around because Satan manipulated the word of God. We'll see here that that doesn't happen. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. An abundance of material things is no answer to our problems necessarily. All that food that Adam and Eve had did not keep them from sinning. The lack of material things Jesus had did not make him sin. Let's not be tricked by that, <laughs> uh, that uh, canard there. If I only had a little more money, everything would be all right. Not necessarily. Israel had just been delivered from Egypt, we read in, in Exodus that I referred to. And first thing they do is gripe about not having anything to eat, forgetting the word of God when he brought them out of Egypt to take them to a land of milk and honey by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's very interesting that this probably here in Luke takes place near Mount Horeb. There are very significant things in past biblical history, including the ministry of Moses was around there and the ministry of Elijah. Two very important things in the scripture. Matter of fact, those two people will come to the forefront in Jesus' ministry later in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. These things are taking place here. But Jesus knew in his weak humanity the truth of that he was the son of God. And again, again, he identifies with us, if you will, as human beings. Again to Hebrews chapter four. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every way, yet without sin. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Will you remember that next time you're tempted? <laughs> I mean, it might be some things catch us off guard. And before you know it, we've done it, lost our temper or something like that. 
But can you not stop and remember in all of these things, Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. Remember the place of the word of God. Remember that. Here, Satan plays on his ego, if you will, in this physical temptation here in particular. It is a subtle attack. It's more than his physical need. It is an attack at his messiahship. It really is. <laughs> you know, Jesus, just another example in, the, in the John's gospel, they were out ministering and they'd been doing it hard and long and the disciples were being concerned. They were tired, they were hungry. And someone asked, has anyone brought him food? Talking about Jesus. Christ answered them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He never lost sight of that mission, never. Well, temptation number two, Satan failed there. So we go to verse five and we read, second temptation, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. What's going on here? Yes, that's true. There's some debate about that if he really had this authority, but you're right. Even as he's described, perhaps he did to some measure have authority there, not ultimately, for the God, our God is the God of this entire world. Satan does have sway though. What's going on here? We've moved from a physical temptation to a spiritual temptation. What's, what's happening? Well, like our friend said, he is the prince of the power of the air. But we need to remember verses such as this and think about them when we think about what Satan could do. John chapter 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He is prince of the power of the air. But our savior in John says he will be cast out. John 16, I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now we need to remember ultimately that hasn't happened yet. Well, in our eyes, but you need to remember that when these verses are written, God who is speaking this in Jesus Christ is a God of eternity. <laughs> He's above all of this. We're counting the days to our next birthday, perhaps. All of this has been accomplished in the sight of our God. He's a God of eternity. We ought to jump on this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's done that because he himself is deluded. He can't think straight. He thinks crookedly. He offers all of this. He is taken up. There's some discussion about where this is or how this could be. Maybe it was just a vision when uh, Satan presented all these kingdoms. But whatever it was, we don't know from the scripture, but he was able to, to present this as a temptation. He is persisting here. The bread into uh, the stones into bread didn't work. Well, let's up the ante. I'll give you all of this. 
what would you do if someone came to you, said something like that? If you'll just do so-and-so, my inheritance of $25 million is yours. Well, we can labor, belabor the question, did Satan really have authority or the ability to do this? If he did, it was only by permission of God. Let's remember that. Maybe he had this power. Obviously, he thought he did, but it is only by the permission of God in heaven. Jesus That's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. What does he say? Who? Jesus. He answered him, it is written. Yeah, it's written. You shall work. That's interesting. In every one of these, Jesus doesn't stand up and say, look, you don't have the authority to do this. Quiet. He doesn't say to Satan like he did to Peter, get behind me. He listens, but he answers from Scripture. He doesn't do as Roger said. As the Son of God, he had the right to all of this, did he not? Did he not? Psalm 2 tells us he did. He was told he would be given all of the nations as a heritage. He's told that. It is a fact in eternity. So why wouldn't Jesus succumb here to this? Wasn't the Father's will. That's right. At this time and place, it was not the Father's will. Besides that, can you, let's just take an aside here. Can you think how the Jews must have thought of this? What kind of Messiah were they looking for? Thank you, pardon? Military. Political, military. They were looking for the taking over of the nations. Can you imagine their reaction to this? <laughs> he didn't take these people, these countries, these nations to be his own. He can't be the Messiah. That's not how we see him coming. It wasn't God's plan for Adam to do things Satan's way. And here... It wasn't his plan for Jesus to take the nations this way either. There are no shortcuts conceived by you or I or Satan that can thwart God's plans. You think of any way you can to get around this, that, or the other. If it's not in the will of God, we're foolish to attempt it. Remember this. And I'm sure Jesus knew this, even as a human being here. He knew perhaps Psalm 2 and 8. Ask of me, God say, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Our Savior knew that. God ordained that suffering would precede glory. And truth be told, that's what's happened in our lives since sin came into the world. Very few uh, testimonies of people leaving this earth uh, go without suffering. Even our recent folks who've passed away. It's a disease. It's some kind of calamity that has struck the body that takes us away. There's only one instance where that's basically... Uh, 
not seen, and that's, of course, the life of Enoch, which is strange and that we need to, to delve into sometime. It isn't what Satan was after all trying to do here, was it? It wasn't to give him uh, all the nations of the world. Not at all. What was he trying to do? Again, he was trying to thwart the mission of Jesus Christ as Messiah. So temptation number two comes to take away his Messiahship. He goes to the heart of the issue in verse seven. He says, excuse me, while I get there, to you, I will give all the authority and glory for it has been delivered to me. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. This is Satan's activity even from before our time began in heaven. He led a rebellion that he might be above, and the scripture says that in Isaiah, that he might be above God. This is the issue. Worship me. And of course, Jesus was able to break that down very easily. What would have happened if he'd done this? Besides losing his place as the Messiah, what else? What happens when we sin? We become a slave to it. Jesus would have been a slave to Satan had he done this. You talk about trading masters, one good for one bad. This is horrible. That's what it would have been. It would have simply made him a slave of Satan. And Satan still would have been under the final authority of God the Father. It was a no-win situation, and Jesus knew that. The consequences were eternal. You know, when, broke, when we break fellowship with the Father, uh, it's an awful thing. And, and I know when we come under a conviction and repent, how much better it feels to be restored. Just think, this is the fellowship that Satan wanted him to break with the Father, but it was an eternal one. And our broken fellowship would be eternal too if we didn't get forgiveness for our sins. But wow, the devastation of this. Jesus answers victoriously from Deuteronomy 6 and 13. He will only bow the knee and render worship to God in God's way, no matter what the promises are that Satan offers. So from this experience, Jesus could later say in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, now this to me, when I read this, this gives greater depth to this verse that I've heard many times. When I put it in the context of Luke 4, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's what would have taken place here. Would have gained the whole, well, Satan says that anyhow, would have gained the whole world, but would have lost his soul, would have lost his calling. Jesus' kingdom, and we need to, I know you know this, but let me remind you, his kingdom is not of this world. We don't seek the Messiah that the Jews, Jewish leaders at this time sought. We know who he is and we can follow after him. Jesus chooses 
conflict rather than giving in. Well, let me hasten on to temptation number three. What's this temptation all about in verses nine through 11? He took him to Jerusalem, put him up on a pinnacle of the temple, said, cast yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Something's missing there. Do you know what it is? Well, he's moved a physical location here to the top of the temple at the temple. He wants them to be tempted with regard to his calling. That's what's going on here. We move past the physical thing, the spiritual thing. Now he's going to tempt him with regard to his calling. Maybe you want to call this his vocation. What work he came to do. There's speculation that this was the roof of the royal, royal portico that overlooked a ravine, the highest place on the temple, and then right behind it was this great ravine. And uh, it was a place that when measured to the bottom of that ravine was over 400 feet. My guess is he would not have survived physically <laughs> had he done this. Would have died, surely. It's said in Josephus that a priest every day would go to the top of the temple and look for the coming of the Messiah physically and be ready to come down with the message that they saw him. Uh, that's Josephus writing. I don't find it in scripture, but it's an interesting correlation to this. This temptation is more than mental here. It is more than physical. It is adding to the word of God. What does he do here? He, Satan, quotes the scripture, but he leaves something off there. What does he leave off? In that verse that he quotes there, <coughs> command his angels and they will bear you up. He leaves off these words, in all your ways. Jesus does not say to him, <laughs> look, uh, get out of here that, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. He accepts that that's the word of God, but surely he knows in all your ways. Satan leaves that off here because he doesn't want him to consider that. And this particularly is not God's way. He, Christ accepts this perhaps as a legitimate quote up to a point, but there's nothing that's going to fool him. And Satan is going to be thwarted once again. But he's desperate here. This might be the last chance he gets, at least in this encounter, to have Jesus succumb to him. He tries to get Jesus to do what here? What's he doing? More than the physical act here, what is he doing? He is tempting the Father. Wow. Have you ever done that? You know, some people say that's what Gideon was doing with the fleece thing. Uh, I don't think so. There are other places where people seem to be tempting the Lord in the scriptures, but this is definitely what's going on there. Jesus is being tempted to play on an assumption with regard to God the Father in his desperation. He wants to test the father. Throw yourself down. He says he'll take care of you. Yeah, he'll take care of us too. <laughs> but
But it doesn't mean we go out and play in traffic on I-85 at 8 o'clock in the morning, Monday through Friday, does it? No. The relationship we want, want and must have with God is one of trust, not testing. Trust, not testing. When I say that, what are we going to trust in? The very thing that Jesus uses to refute Satan the word of God. He is true to his word. You know, Christ doesn't need instructions from the devil. He didn't need them here. He follows the word of God. This temptation involves presuming on the grace of God. We cannot do that. You remember in the New Testament, what does Paul say about this? Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? What's his answer? God forbid, let that be anathema. God forbid that we do that. And thankfully, Jesus does. What right do we have to presume upon God? None whatsoever. Uh, some people do this, sadly. Young people do this in getting married to an unbeliever, thinking that it'll work out. That's presuming upon the grace of God. Other people think that they can continue with their one particular habit that irks them all the time, a sin, thinking they can continue to presume upon the grace of God. We cannot do that. Well, Jesus simply and masterfully answers Satan, again from Deuteronomy. All this, and he overcomes them with the word of God. And then we come to verse 13, and we'll end there, of course, today. When the devil had ended every temptation... What does it say? He departed, waited for another good time to come. And we will see that through our study of the life of Jesus Christ. Think of the future temptations that will come into Jesus' life. I just told you about one, Peter. Satan had to rebuke him, tell him to get behind me. Think about the temptation that came to him if you read the story. And we'll probably do this in the next few weeks as we look to Easter. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the temptation that came to him, and he prayed if there's any other way, basically he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. How heavy it was. And just think of the temptation that afflicted him when it was time to go to the cross. <laughs> you know, there's a way out of this. He could have done that before Caiaphas, before any other leader he met perhaps great temptation that was still to come. But this was stoking him, if you will, for that day. There's so many other things we could say about this. Let me encourage you, like Ephesians says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and use it. And uh, Psalm 119, we read this. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How often Jesus did this in his 30 plus years and he's doing it exceedingly well here. Do you have any questions or comments? Any disputation? Yes, sir, brother. Uh, no disputation. <laughs> you know, I think uh, these temptations of Jesus and you mentioned this, so I hope this isn't a blinding flash of the obvious. Well, uh, Jesus didn't 
follow that temptation and say, he's Jesus, and, and I'm just a man. And Jesus was fully man. This was a real, <coughs> true temptation uh, for him. And, Amen. I, I was reminded in, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 5, it sort of hints on this, talking about Jesus being our faithful high priest. Um, he had to be a man to be a faithful high priest. He had to be a perfect man. That's right. Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's the verse right prior to the passage we were in in Luke. And it says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And then it says, this is a fascinating verse to me. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And so it's out of his perfect obedience, even with this massive temptation from the devil, that uh, we can look and say, yes, indeed, there is proof that he is our faithful, obedient uh, high priest who is able Amen. Amen. And that lasts forever, that, that continuing evidence there in Hebrews. Well, thank you for your attention. Let's go on to the worship, shall we?